Deadbeat, where we talk all things obituaries, true crime, and the politics of loss. I'm Mary-Kate Gorman. And I'm Solana Quistorf. Plugging in a different kind of body to the same kind of structure that sort of exploits violence in this way, in the way that the True Crime Podcast does, is maybe not so, so equitable. Mary-Kate, you just came from a romantic candlelit dinner with Aaron. Oh, no, I most certainly did not. <laughs> Let me tell you about the shit storm of a dinner that oh, I God. tried my darndest to prepare. <laughs> well, first of all, I was like, I'm going to try a new recipe. Like, this lentil curry that I've been trying to get right. Okay. God damn it. And I was like, I'm going to try it out. And then I was like, everything all day ran too long mm-hmm. and too late mm-hmm. and then i was late getting home and i was like there is no time okay fair so you need ample time yes. so sauna what do i go to when i have no time but have to cook pasta the pesto pasta the pesto pasta i've had this pesto pasta folks top of the line no top of the line everyone would be appalled <laughs> it's literally just a little penne a little seared chicken store-bought pesto like a heathen so anyway this is all very simple right it's very simple tasks not hard i cut up the chicken and then i was trying to put the rest of the chicken Mm -hmm. into a container to put in the fridge i'm fighting with the chicken to get the (laughs) lid onto the container when the pasta starts boiling over Mm -hmm. and so i like jump across the stove to try to pull the pasta off and in that quick motion I fling the entire tub of chicken onto oh, the floor. Raw chicken? The whole kitten caboodle. The whole spray. But then I didn't even save the pasta from boiling over, so the pasta boiled over. And then once I got that figured out, <laughs> and got all the chicken nastiness cleaned off the floor, the pasta is boiling, and I was like, I need to try a noodle to see if it's done. Did you throw it on the cabinet? I pulled like a noodle out, and I like... It fell off of the spoon, and then it fell into my hand, and then it burned my hand, and I pulled my hand back, and then the pasta noodle fell into the deepest, darkest chasm (laughs) of the stove. Irretrievable. Gone forever. I don't know where. Luckily, you're renting that place. It's not going to (laughs) mold anytime soon. It'll be fine. Plus, then I finally got it all set and going and stuff's fine and i'm mixing the pesto in just to warm it through and sure enough i'm just trying to stir it and i managed to fling a little chicken chunk full of pesto (laughs) onto the goddamn kitchen floor oh i was ready to cry aaron was laughing so hard it was not cute it was not romantic (laughs) i I was just mad it was cute and romantic probably for aaron What do you say? Should we get this shit started? <laughs> I, I suppose so. I got to cost 12% less. Only 12? Well, <laughs> enough less to still be interesting, but I'm just, I peeked my way into vulgarity, so I don't want to do that anymore. Mm. Is vulgarity a word? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, great. And we hope that one day we can continue beyond the thesis project so we can say all the naughty words. And maybe be rich. And maybe be rich, too. That's usually the goal. Rich and famous. Yes. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. yes. 
Today, we're talking about inequalities in the genre, correct? Yeah. So how this works is based on some of the very popular podcasts that we listen to. We don't know each other's stories. And the way we chose the stories we're going to tell today was with this theme. Our guiding question is what constitutes a grievable body? So we talked about this concept a little bit last week about the grievable body, which comes from Judith Butler, a great scholar. And the idea is that some bodies have more value than others. And therefore, in death, some bodies are more grievable than others and by certain people. So that is kind of the concept that I think is kicking us off today. Yes. So we started to discuss this during the last episode, and I don't want to overlap too much, but I do want to return to some of those things. I promise it'll be interesting. But we talked about the fact that there tends to be this assumption that everyone has an equal shot at getting one of these things, these obituaries, after they die. If not in the New York Times or the national newspaper, then at least a small town one. But of course, that's not really the case. So, as I said last week, I will predominantly focus on the New York Times. It's the one I've read the most, most familiar with. This thing is pretty darn selective. The subjects must have contributed to society in some way. And there are kind of weird layers to this. Sometimes there criteria feels very ambiguous and obscure to me mm-hmm. because of course you have the big name folks when someone like Betty White yes or Bob Saget passes away those are big name folks who get pretty sizable spreads in the New York Times but you also have for instance the man who invented the slinky mm. he gets a New York Times obituary well he brought joy to millions Right. Sorry. (laughs) But there seems to be like this weird sliding scale that I simply cannot wrap my head around totally. As I mentioned last time, there is a 2016 documentary. It's available on Amazon Prime. We can probably link to it. You do have to pay for it. I'm very sorry. But it's just called Obit. It features the obituary writing team at the New York Times. And Marguerite Fox is a senior obituary writer, or was when this Mm -hmm. documentary was shot. She explains, and this is a quote from her, one of the things obit writers are often asked with real anger and real pain is why don't your pages represent more women and minorities? The short answer is, this is going to sound flippant, and I don't mean it to in any way. Ask me again in one more generation. Fox then goes on to say, Obits are an inherently retrospective genre. We are reporting on people who were in their prime, moving and shaking, changing the world 40, 50, 60 years ago. The harsh reality of our culture is that by and large, the only people who were allowed to be actors on the world stage 40 and 50 years ago were overwhelmingly white men. Mm. And I, she comes in and says that she doesn't mean to sound flippant. But it does feel a little bit flippant. And I'm sorry. It's Black History Month while we're recording this. Yeah. And I've been watching plenty of content about people, specifically people of color, who have been making immeasurable contributions to society and just were purposely 
left out of the conversation. Yes. Yes. Hmm. A thousand percent. And I feel like the way the comment is crafted kind of excuses them. Mm -hmm. It's to me kind of saying we aren't perpetuating the systemic standard. We're just reporting on it. And it Mm -hmm. feels just like a little bit of a cop out. As you say, there are people, Ida B. Wells. Yeah, we talked about her last week. Yeah. And I'll mention her again a little bit later. Really? But she, she doesn't get an obituary. Yeah. Certainly moving, shaking, making history. Mm-hmm. And I understand the point, right? It's doing a very different thing than what the rest of the New York Times is doing, which is reporting on the day-to-day news. Yeah. I understand that it has to do a different job. And I try to be sympathetic to the constraints that they're working with. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I totally buy this logic. And she does go on to say that they've started to see more diversity, more women, more people of color. And that makes her really excited. But I also printed off this. This was written by William McDonald, who was the... I don't know if he's still the obit desk editor. Okay. He was, again, when this documentary was shot. And this is an article that he wrote in 2018. And it is called, From the Death Desk, Why Most Obituaries Are Still of White Men. And there are just a few quotes in here. And, I, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. We can link to the entire thing in our show notes. But I just have a few things that I wanted to point out. So this is one portion that says, we're exclusive in the extreme. We have to be. We have only so much space in the print newspaper, only so many hands to produce stories and only so many hours in the day to produce them. Yet we have a very wide world to watch. He goes on. Some might think our process presumptuous. Who, after all, anointed a handful of Times editors to stand by the roadside as a parade of humanity passes and single out this one, this one, but not that one, as worthy of being remembered? The answer is that no one did, actually, because that is not precisely what we decide. We make no judgments, moral or otherwise, about human worth. What we do try to judge, however, is newsworthiness, and that's a whole other standard. Man. Don't you just want to rip that to shreds? Are you about to right now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, A little bit. For every person we decide to write about, there are innumerable others we decide against. Fame and accomplishment are relative. The public eye is easily distracted, and only a moment or two in its fickle gaze may not be enough to merit a backward look in the times. One thing to remember is that it is not our intent to honor the dead. We leave the tributes to the eulogists. We seek only to report deaths and to sum up lives, illuminating why, in our judgment, those lives were significant. The justification for the obituary is in the story it tells. Many readers legitimately ask, why are the vast majority of our obituary subjects white men? The answer lies in our not-so-distant history. And he goes on to explain it. He goes on to talk about his hope for obituaries moving forward. 
he does highlight a few more diverse examples and he does discuss Overlooked, which is a project that I am going to introduce here shortly. But what are your thoughts on this? I have so many thoughts going through my head right now. Please. First of all, I've thought about this a lot where our project, the outcome of our conversations could potentially be that these genres should not exist. I thought about that before, right? That would be a very radical statement by us. But when you come across these comments like about this is just how the genre works because this is how history has worked, this is how newspapers have worked, how we decide who's worthy or not, right? Like I think of when he said what we have deemed as important or Mm -hmm. whatever about their lives and how things like motherhood people don't care about, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. a woman's thing. Yeah, That's not deemed important enough to put into an obituary perhaps. And I don't know, you look at them more than me, but I think that it is revealing to me the same things that I look at in my project as the roots of this thing. Really, we can't divorce ourselves from it. I think the whole thing feels pretty dismissive. Yeah. But even the title, to me, recuses the paper. I just feel like, also, if you fit diverse bodies into this white genre that decides what's newsworthy or not, doesn't that in the same way kind of continue the exclusivity that they've been doing? The representation doesn't, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but the representation is less of an issue if diverse bodies are still being exploited. Yeah. And I feel like in a way, the obituary is exclusive not only to whiteness, but to types of people anyways. So it's like by putting other types of bodies into the same mold that it has been excluding bodies doesn't suddenly make that medium inclusive. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes, yes. The way this is framed, the way it's shaped, reads to me just like a justification and Mm -hmm. not really any kind of acknowledgement. Yeah. I don't feel like there's a moment that says, hey, this is also because of us. This is a practice that we've perpetuated. However, I will say the project that I want to talk about today is the Overlooked Project, which is a New York Times project. It runs alongside the regular standard obituary. It first appeared in 2018 on International Women's Day and now runs as a weekly installment in the paper's obituary section. And it's trying to go back and pin down the stories of notable people whose deaths were originally overlooked Mm -hmm. by the newspaper. These all appeared in the very first release, I guess, but like Sylvia Plath, Ida B. Wells, and Nella Larson. Okay. Wow. Are the three that always stick in my mind. Um, Didn't get New York Times obituaries. Ada Lovelace is, I think, another one who they did in that original release. And the project goes back in time, looks at those stories, and gives them that obit now. It acknowledges that many obit subjects in the New York Times have been white men, and it's looking back at the history that they've missed. It is attempting, I think, to retroactively bring those forgotten stories Mm. of women and people of color and minorities who did amazing, amazing things into a present awareness. 
it's the paper's attempt to reckon to a certain extent mm. with its own history of releasing certain stories. To me, it feels like the counterpart to Mr. McDonald's statements here. And it was spearheaded by Amisha Padnani. In print, her name always appears Amisha. Okay. That's always how it's printed. But when she introduces herself in interviews and such, mm-hmm. she always just says Amy okay. Padnani. Yeah. So I'm not sure which she prefers. So mm-hmm. I'll just probably say Padnani. Awesome. And Jessica Bennett. So these were two, these are the two women who spearheaded the project. And I have kind of a funny side note. I looked up the project on Wikipedia just to see what Wikipedia said about it. Yeah. And it said, it's a collection of posthumous obituaries. As if, as if there could ever be, as if they could ever be anything but. Maybe that person did that on purpose. Maybe. In fact, perhaps. (laughs) If they did. Maybe it's a listener of our show who wanted us to have a good chuckle. (laughs) I think it was Greg. Anyway, sorry. Fun trivia fact. So this project, it is really, really cool. Came out on International Women's Day, doing some very cool stuff. And then they also did a special collection for Black History Month in 2019, which is amazing. Padnani also does a TED Talk Mm -hmm. where she introduces the project. But she did say that they went back and looked and they found that from 1851 to 2017, only about 15 to 20 percent of the obits were about women. Wow. That's wow. Yeah. And Padnani, I think, ended up working with a programmer to build like a diversity analysis tool that could kind of track, you know, how many obituaries were about women, how many were about people of color. I wonder Things how that like stacks that. up to the news. I wonder if they do have some sort of algorithm because they have to have all the archives there. Yeah. So interesting. And she does say that they push it to 30% um, between March 2018 and March 2019. 30% of obituaries about women? Yeah, I think they push it up. Guess who makes up more than 30% of the population? Also women. That's something that I will say that she acknowledges when mm-hmm. she talks about the project. It's very interesting to me because she talks about the project being very successful in the TED Talk. But she also talks about having to convince the editors. And then once it's successful, everyone's on board. Or at least it feels that way to me. Yeah, as right. A, as a sour listener <laughs> who doesn't know anything about behind the scenes. But, I mean, it became hugely successful but the subjects still have to have made a contribution to society you still have to be useful to society in some way to edge your way in even in overlooked so i want to tell a story today from the overlooked project okay my very favorite example of overlooked which is not the story i'm telling today but i must i must at least briefly touch on it is janet sobel i love this woman She was an abstract expressionist painter who inspired Jackson Pollock. In her overlooked obituary (laughs) that is supposed to be recuperating her story since she's been forgotten in favor of Jackson Pollock, they name drop Jackson Pollock (laughs) 12 times. 12 times. 12 times. A dozen one dozen. Oh, God. As many eggs as you have in a carton. 
that is how many times they name drop Jackson Pollock. That's like when you're talking to a guy about something that you did and they just keep talking about something that they did in relation to the thing that you did. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. the energy that I'm getting from that. Yeah. And again, the whole point was that she was overlooked while Jackson Pollock was celebrated. But in pointing that out, they also celebrated (laughs) Jackson. I just was like, oh, my gosh, guys. Friends, friends. Yeah, then she's only known in her relation to him. Exactly. Yeah. Which is the whole thing we're trying to avoid, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's my very favorite. So, but you're not telling that story today. I'm not telling that okay, story today. Okay, she's switching it up on me, folks. Today, I am reading the story of Emma Gatewood. And I am just going to read her obituary, as it appears here. This obituary does discuss some kind of upsetting scenes, um, depictions of violence against women that could be potentially triggering. I just want to let everybody know um, if you need to skip over this little section, please do so. Thank you for that, Mary This is called Overlooked No More. That's how each one starts. Overlooked No More. Emma Gatewood first woman to conquer the Appalachian Trail alone. And this appeared in 2018. And who wrote this? Catherine Seeley. God bless. They also always start with this little blurb. Since 1851, obituaries in the New York Times have been dominated by white men. With Overlooked, we're adding the stories of remarkable people whose deaths went unreported in the Times. What the public knew about Emma Gatewood was already remarkable. She was the first woman to hike the entire Appalachian Trail by herself in one season. She was 67 years old, a mother of 11, a grandmother, and even a great-grandmother when she accomplished the feat in 1955. And she personified the concept of low-tech, ultralight hiking, spurning a tent and sleeping bag, carrying only a small sack and relying on her trusty kids. But what the public did not know was equally remarkable. Grandma Gatewood, as she was called, had survived 30 years of severe beatings and sexual abuse by her husband. She often escaped from him by running into the woods, and she came to view the wilderness as protective and restorative. Mm. During her trek on the Appalachian Trail, word of her passage spread from town to town along the 2050-mile route from Georgia to Maine, Sightings of her were like catnip to local newspaper reporters who took to the trail to interview her as she passed through. One newspaper account found its way to her hometown in Ohio, which is how her children, by then grown and out on their own, learned where she had gone when she said she was going for a walk. But Gatewood was alone and in her late 60s renewed interest in the trail, especially among women. If a woman of her age could hike it all the way in one season, many of them reasoned. They could too. Her citation at the Appalachian Trail Museum concludes, she inspired two distinct movements in long distance hiking, women through hikers and the ultralight movement. By the time Gatewood died at 85 in 1973, apparently of a heart attack, she had hiked the length of the Appalachian Trail three times, the third time in sections, and was the first person, man or woman, to conquer it more than once. Another woman, Mildred Norman Ryder, known as Peace Pilgrim, had hiked the entire trail in 1952, 
but she had done it in her mid-40s and with a companion. Earl Schaefer became the first person to hike the trail alone, which he did in 1948 at 29. He received a New York Times obituary. In 1959, Gatewood went on to conquer the 2,000 miles of the Oregon Trail, trekking alone from Independence, Missouri to Portland. By this time, some newspapers called her, quote, America's most celebrated pedestrian. Hmm. The story of Gatewood's battering at the hands of her husband did not emerge for more than half a century. When a newspaper reporter, Ben Montgomery, told her story in Grandma Gatewood's Walk, a book published in 2014. Montgomery worked for the Tampa Bay Times in Florida, and Gatewood was his great-great-aunt. In his research for the book, her surviving children spoke with him and entrusted him with her journals, letters, and scrapbooks. In that material, he found stark references to what she had withheld from news interviews, that her husband had nearly pummeled her to death several times. During one beating, she wrote, he broke a broom over her head. Her children told Montgomery that their father's sexual hunger had been insatiable and that he forced himself on their mother several times a day. In 1937, she left him and moved in with relatives in California, leaving behind two daughters, ages 9 and 11, who were still at home. She was confident that her husband would not beat the girls, and she could not afford to take them with her. In a sorrowful letter to her daughters with no return address, she wrote, quote, I have suffered enough at his hands to last me for the next hundred years. But unable to bear being away from them any longer, she returned after a few months. Back in Ohio, her husband would not let her out of his sight. She later wrote that in 1983, he beat her beyond recognition ten times. Quote, for a lot of people, the trail is a refuge. Brian B. King, a publisher of guidebooks and maps for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, said in a telephone interview. But seldom is it a refuge for something as bad as that. Emma Rowena Caldwell was born on October 25, 1887, in Galea County, Ohio. Her father, Hugh Caldwell, a farmer, had lost a leg after being wounded in the Civil War and turned to a life of drinking and gambling. Her mother, Evelyn Trowbridge Caldwell, raised the couple's 15 children, who slept four to a bed in the family's log cabin. At 19, Emma married Perry Clayton Gatewood, 26, a teacher who later became a farmer. Almost immediately, he put her to work building fences, burning tobacco beds, and mixing cement, in addition to her household chores. Three months after their wedding, he started to beat her, a practice he would continue, until one day in 1939, he broke her teeth, cracked one of her ribs, and bloodied her face. In that incident, Gatewood responded by throwing a sack of flour at him, prompting a law enforcement officer to arrest her, not him, and put her in jail. The next day, the mayor saw her battered face and took her to his own home, where she remained under his protection until she got back on her feet. A short time later, her husband left for good. Gatewood filed for divorce, which was granted in 1941, and he was out of her life. In 1949, she came across a National Geographic magazine article about the Appalachian Trail and became intrigued to learn in reading it that no woman had ever hiked it solo. Gatewood's only real training for her historic trek was walking 10 miles a day to build up her leg muscles, but in a sense her entire life had prepared her for the undertaking. 
Through endless farm chores, as a child and as an adult, she knew how to work herself to the bone and then to keep on going. She had often found a haven in the woods from her grinding chores and later from her abusive husband. Though her formal education ended in the eighth grade, she was resourceful and taught herself about wildlife and the medicinal properties of plants and which ones were edible. Her first attempt at hiking the Appalachian Trail in 1954 ended badly. Starting out in Maine, she quickly broke her glasses, got lost, and was rescued by rangers who told her to go home. The next year, she started in Georgia and successfully trekked north. In neither instance did she tell her children where she was going. Montgomery, the author, said she feared that they would try to stop her. Gatewood sewed herself a small drawstring sack. In it, she carried as few items as possible, including a shower curtain to keep the rain off, a Swiss Army knife, a flashlight, band-aids, iodine, a pen, and a small notebook. Her larder consisted of Vienna sausages, raisins, peanuts, and bouillon cubes. She wore through seven pairs of canvas shoes, most of them kids. Gatewood had seen no need to lug a tent. She had planned to rely on the hospitality of strangers. And more often than might be expected, she was able to do just that, in part because of her growing fame. Still, she spent many nights on the cold ground, under picnic tables, and even on a porch swing. She completed her first hike in 146 days, an average of 14 miles a day. It was considered a remarkable pace, especially given her age, her limited gear, and the condition on the trail. She would often set out before sunrise and not stop until she was spent. The members of at least one Boy Scout troop and their leaders reported that they could not keep up with her. As she closed in on Mount Katahdin, the northern terminus of the trail, in a rugged part of Maine, newspaper reporters extolled her achievement and, quote, much of America was pulling for her, Montgomery wrote. People, he said, were clipping newspaper articles at kitchen tables, watching her traipse across the evening news on television, wondering whether she'd survive. This woman in so mean a place. Little did they know what she had already survived. And that is Emma Gatewood's overlooked obituary from the New York Times. Wow, what a woman. And it's a really, really incredible story. What do you think? There's a lot of thoughts going through my mind, especially in context of what you read earlier, where what is highlighted is her newsworthiness and a very, very bad, scary, hard part of her life. But the thing about obituaries, too, and I feel this way about murder podcasts, is that I'm always rooting for the person, you know? Mm -hmm. And I hope that some of the essence of what you read there is true to who she was because I just like her and I want her to be well where she is now. Or, And I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly, but I feel connected to her and I hope that that's authentic through reading that, I guess. Yeah, yeah I'm amazed. I'm amazed by that story. I think it's incredibly difficult not to feel connected to it. Yeah. It's moving and it's heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. and it's gut-wrenching. And when I read these things, don't get me wrong, I'm never, ever suggesting that someone shouldn't be remembered, and I am never critiquing the subject or their story. Emma Gatewood sounds like a 
freaking badass. And may she rest in peace. Absolutely. But I do often go back for a second look at the rhetorical choices of the genre. And when I read this, I ask, how do we treat violence in these instances? And her story is already remarkable, Mm -hmm. but the violence in the way that it's rhetorically constructed here becomes this extra element that somehow makes it more so. Yeah. And I also think that the violence against her only becomes notable when she overcomes it to do a newsworthy notable thing. And what about the women who don't overcome Women and men. People who don't overcome it. Or the people who do but then don't go on to hike the Appalachian Trail all by themselves. Yes. Overcoming that violence is no less tragic and heartbreaking and Mm -hmm. gut-wrenching for those subjects. It does have the spin to it that all her life was pointing to having no accomplishments and then she accomplished something. Yeah. Hmm. And I do love kind of the humility of the story, right? It's hard not to root for that when you hear about this incredible woman who's just packing up her little tin of Vienna sausages and her own homemade chicken bouillon. Yeah. (laughs) And her kids, kids canvas shoes. Isn't that excellent? Yeah. But these stories, because of where they're published and because of their nature, it's always a commodity, right? And it's so complex, too, because there's a layer of, in society, we don't talk about X, Y, Z thing. And there's also a layer of the obituary writer chose to follow the storytelling format of the author mm-hmm. about that book rather than Emma, right? Who had never said anything about her abuse before. Isn't that what they said? Exactly. And so I understand that maybe there's a push to expose some of the bad things in order to talk about them. Mm -hmm. But there's also a level of exploitation of that was hidden and maybe she wanted it so and maybe not. Maybe it was societal pressure, but I wonder what she would say. I wonder the exact same thing. And who knows? I certainly cannot speak for her and I am not in any way critiquing her story right yeah any aspect of it but I think the rhetorical framing in these documents becomes very interesting and I also don't really understand this is something else that happens often in the overlooked obituaries why you know it's like Earl Schaefer became the first person to hike the trail alone and he got a New York Times obituary and I'm like I don't really care about Earl right now (laughs) I'm sorry tell me about Emma I don't want to hear about Earl it's doing that same thing where the accomplishments always are happening in comparison to Mm -hmm. or in competition Mm -hmm. with or in conjunction with a guy I thought the same thing too when you read that line that it's nodding to the project of overlooked rather than the person by saying things like, this guy got an obituary and she didn't. And then it's like, wow, good job, New York Times. They're like looking for a pat on the back there, you know? Yeah. I don't know. And the title? 
overlooked no more. That's how every single one of them starts. So before I even get to Emma Gatewood as the subject, it's about their project. Damn, Mary-Kate, they should ask you on a talk show. You're dropping some knowledge here. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) And I think my argument about Overlooked is that it often acts as a palliative space. Mm -hmm. But it ends up being more for the audience and the publication than it does for the story of the person that it's supposed to be about. But is that, is it ever meant to be about that person? I think they claim that it is. Yeah. But then the article you were reading earlier from one of the people on the deadbeat was saying that their job is leaving the morning to the eulogizers, Mm -hmm. that line, and talking about how their job is to just put a death notice, basically. I don't know. It flies in the face of that, really. What is the job? And again, who is it for? Hmm. I don't think I've got the answer there, but I think perhaps it shouldn't be for the New York Times. Certainly not. (laughs) They have enough. The other thing that I always think about is the fact that this project happens in a completely different space than the regular obituary projects. Mm -hmm. And I think that the gap between those two projects allows us not to think about what's going on in the regular New York Times obituary section. Because we get to say, hey, look. We're doing this great thing over here and overlooked. We're pushing back against the discrimination. And they are. They yeah. are. But what about the discrimination that's happening today? And it's interesting, too, because we talk about this in the demographics of true crime podcasting. Is it about just proportional? Mm-hmm. I wonder what the proportions are relative to the population. And it's so interesting. Hmm. excited to listen to your story this week. Well, thank you. So you have got me thinking a lot about formulas Mm. in these genres. I'm not sure if you have talked about the formula that you've devised for the obituary. So I'd like for you to share with us that. And then I'll tell you my own formula that I made for the true crime genre. Oh, okay. This formula, I constructed as part of the more academic, strictly scholarly piece of this thesis project, where I did more of a more of an academic article length thing. Mm-hmm. And I pulled very heavily from the work of I think my very favorite scholar. I think mine too. Sarah Ahmed. We love her. Look her up, folks, if you don't know her, Sarah Ahmed. And I pull from her book, The Promise of Happiness, first, and also her book, What's the Use? Her focus on happiness is not on like the joyful affect, but how happiness is actually used as like a normativizing force. Mm -hmm. And the whole concept of the promise of happiness is like this image, right, that we've curated in society that says if you do x y and z in the right way the right bodies moving through the world in the correct way right like all in scare quotes that equals happiness and so in this way it becomes actually a very directing force Mm. so i was thinking a lot about obituaries of course over the summer reading sarah ahmed 
and I came up with this formula that the useful body equals the happy body equals the grievable body. Mm-hmm. Right? Picking up her concept of use, being, quote, useful in the right ways, contributing to your society, being additive in some way, often in the obituary is framed as the thing that makes people happy. And these two things together, I think, create the image, the idea of the grievable body that's worthy of remembrance. That's kind of my conception of it. I like that. That's a lot about like the content and the emotional impact and Mm -hmm. the politics of the obituary. I wrote a formula sort of based on the standard narrative arc of a true crime story, particularly Mm. the true crime podcast. I was thinking that perhaps we could start by thinking about a little show called My Favorite Murder. Not sure if you heard of it. According to Vulture.com, My Favorite Murder is one of the most successful and influential podcasts of all time, not just in true crime, but of all time, all time. The show ranks fourth on Newsweek's top true crime podcast and 12th on Apple Podcasts uh, in September of 2021. They also brought in $15 million through advertising and merchandising in 2019. I so, can't even conceptualize that <laughs> amount of money. Mary Kate, just wait. It's coming soon, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I just got back on Instagram, so I'm going to influence our way to the top. We're in business now, baby. Okay, stay with me here. My favorite murder. Hundreds of episodes. Spooky music. Little guitar solo action happening. Mm -hmm. Little acoustic, little jig. There's this chatting. They're funny. Showing their personalities. Vaguely social justice-y at times. Then... They set the scene of the crime. They talk about the crime itself and all the horrid details that happens. They have these phrases like, if that were me, what would I have done? There is the investigation, which is usually botched by idiot police officers, which happens in all kinds of true crime. There's maybe justice or maybe there's not justice. There's some creepy comments about how many people were killed by the serial killer. Mm Mm-hmm. Creepy music, laughing. Done. Okay. This is my very intense formula. You had like a very nice formula. <laughs> this is just sort of the general flow of these kinds of podcasts. So I've been racking my brain for an insanely long time. How do we make this narrative structure more equitable? Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I would look at these podcasts and wonder about the victims. If equal amount of white and non-white victims equals equitable podcast. I pursued that line of thinking for a while. But I've told you this before where I was running into the problem where a lot of victims might be white passing. Or are Jane Doe's and there's no identity. Or... They have a married name that matches a certain identity that maybe they didn't have. So it's actually very hard to collect this data. It's hard to find this data. And actually, I think it's not that important. Plugging in a different kind of body to the same kind of structure that sort of exploits violence in this way, in the way that the True Crime Podcast does, is maybe not so, so equitable. It's a problem with the formula. So I'm wondering if you see the same problem with your formula. Mm. 
our different kinds of bodies treated in the same kind of normatizing way? I think certainly to varying degrees. It's not direct with the same kind of pressure, I don't think. Mm. Well, then, of course, people fall outside of it, right? Yeah. As we just discussed, there are people who are overlooked. I was just trying to conceptualize how the document is formulated. And, right, I think what mine does is also signal to people who are still living, and this is where, like, the directing force keeps Mm -hmm. perpetuating It's like, hey, if you want to be grievable, right? Like for the living audience, it reverse engineers. If you want to be grievable, you be useful, you be happy, and then you get to be remembered, maybe. Hmm. But not everybody does. People fall outside of it. And that's so interesting because I feel like the true crime podcast, on the other hand, is the audience member is not supposed to insert themselves in this position. You don't want a story told about you. Yeah. Which is why there's tips of like, here's our my favorite murder tip of always call your boyfriend before you leave or something. And they yeah. drop these survival tips, quote unquote. Well, yeah. I'm, to do the exact opposite of like, you don't want to be in this genre. Yeah. yeah. Have we talked about the the ladies from Crime Junkie plugging the if I go missing folder? We haven't talked about that yet. I mean, that's just another example that's coming to mind for me. Yeah. So the if I go missing folder is a collection of documents including things like passwords to social media, bank account numbers, and all of that so somebody could track you potentially if you were ever missing. They also have the crime junkie life rules as Mm -hmm. a way to survive. Weird, be rude, stay alive. Yeah. So I think that that is what I'm seeing as the exploitative part of the true crime podcast. Mm. That there's this impetus to learn some sort of survival tip as if this genre is doing something progressive by helping women stay alive. I'm interested in the way the genre is playing politics in a lot of ways. So one way it's doing that is these survival tips. Another way it's doing that is plugging non-white bodies into this same formula, right? Mm. But that's not actually the best way because this idea that Lauren Berlant talks about called survival subculture, where the white hosts of these podcasts sort of act as like gatekeepers, that because they're experienced in what kind of violence has happened against women, because they have a platform where they can talk about this violence, they suddenly start to gatekeep this violence mm-hmm. where they don't actually understand or use their formula in a way that admits that different bodies are exposed to different kinds of vulnerabilities. To be an indigenous woman in this country is so far from the reality of being a white woman in this country that to insert the indigenous body into the same narrative structure as if it's all the same really kind of erases that vulnerability, which is what the survival subculture does. We're all in this together. We all talk about all kinds of violence in the same way. We're all going to survive if we stay sexy, right? So I've been thinking a lot about this scholar. His name is Marshall McLuhan, and I just found out about him, but he's very old. He wrote a very famous book, I want to say in the 60s. I don't think I've ever heard of him. Yeah, he's a a media studies scholar. Oh, okay. And he has this quote, which is our, quote, age of anxiety is in a great part in the result of trying to do today's job with yesterday's tools and yesterday's concepts. That's good. So suddenly I find this quote and it sort of springboards me 
into more of a realization of updating the genre. Let's update the podcast. Let's not try to stick to the same narrative structure. Mm. I've told you before that this narrative structure is kind of rooted in whiteness already. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and I'll just briefly touch on some of them here. So a TV news journalist named Gwen Ifill coined this term called missing white woman syndrome. And it's sort of like an observation of the whiteness of the crime genre, which is that when a white woman goes missing, it stops the news cycle. Everybody's talking about it. They can't quite get enough. She says, we're going to cover that every day if a white woman goes missing. So that's sort of the trend that's happening. But I argue that that starts with Edgar Allan Poe, with Truman Capote, with lynch violence. Yeah. All of these discussions of crime sort of revolve around the white female body. Let's think about lynch violence in particular. These are stories where often a white woman or a young white girl is brutalized or murdered in some way. And she becomes an object that requires action. So we're not grieving her. Instead, we're turning this into racial violence. And it jumpstarts a lynch mob. We know now, and Ida B. Wells, who is another one of our favorite people, Mm -hmm. knew then and said then and published in Southern Horrors and the Red Record that this narrative structure is completely false. My point is, like, true crime now comes out of all of that, where the white woman's body is, like, so important and so crucial, which is what builds this structure that we have today in the podcast that we're trying to force different kinds of bodies into. Yeah. So it made me ask, is inserting a body into this true crime formula the same as saying that that body is grievable and worthwhile and lovely and human. And it is Butler that says when a body isn't considered to be human in the first place, death is not considered to be death. To even occur. So I'm just wondering how can we keep using this structure that is based in the idea that non-white people are not people to say that non-white deaths are deaths. You know, it's like this strange issue. That's where my brain has been going. Suddenly, I come across a light at the end of the tunnel. And I want to say that this website that I'm about to talk about is doing a really great job and demonstrating to us how we're not using yesterday's tools and yesterday's concepts. It's sort of, I think, something that I want to look at deeply with you because it shows an answer to this conundrum which is maybe that, no, we don't fit the black body into the same narrative structure. I read this article about a website called ourblackgirls.com, and it's run by the creator and the only writer named Erica Marie Rivers. This woman lives in L.A., works a full-time job, and runs this amazing website all on her own, in her free time. Which, what free time do you have living in L.A. trying to work? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and what, what is she? Not that it matters, but where does she work? I think I read somewhere that she's a journalist also, so I think she does writing too. That involves some pretty intense time and emotional commitment. I know. Already. Yeah. Basically, she's my third favorite person behind Sarah Ahmed and 
It was the second. I don't know. I was waiting. I, was, I feel like I said. Oh, Sarah Ahmed. Oh, Ida B. Wells. Erica Maria Rivers. Honestly, if I had a t-shirt with all three of those people on there, I'd be super happy. But she researches and writes about cases of missing and murdered black women through history. So you look on there. The furthest one back I've seen is like maybe the 50s, but I'm sure it goes back further. Mm-hmm. All the way up to modern, now happening cases. On the FAQ page on this website, Rivers says that she doesn't really contact the families directly. She tries to find her information online. And I love this because she wants to be super sensitive to the grieving process. God bless her. Yeah. Great way to research. Also, great attitude to have, I think, when we're approaching stories of violent crime. Mm -hmm. And I would pose and argue, and maybe we can talk about this, is... I don't necessarily think that true crime podcasts are making content within uh, care and consideration for perhaps families that might listen. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Something to think about. And who's to say, I guess, I don't want to prescribe reactions or emotions to anybody who is going through the grieving process, but I think it certainly has the potential to be re-traumatizing, yeah. triggering, etc. And we like to laugh on this show. Yeah. But I do think we've said our intentions early that what we really want to look at is these genres and not necessarily these cases and these yeah. people. Yep. Um, so that when we laugh alongside of our own critiques of the way these words work, it's a little different than laughing alongside stories of very gruesome violence. But despite the massive amount of labor that this website requires... Rivers features many cases. She gets a ton of tips and tries to follow up on all of them. She gets a lot of comments and praise for her work because she frames this website as a correction to media disparities. She really does say, gone but not forgotten. Let's give these people some attention. Let's give these women their voices back. Let's tell these women's stories. In fact, every story on Erica's website ends with this phrase. She is our sister and her life matters. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So I have no idea how this woman does it all, but hers is not the only kind of website in this genre. There's also one called the Black and Missing Foundation, which is really great. The reason that these websites are so important, there's disparities in the identity of missing people. Black and brown women, and especially indigenous women, go missing and are murdered at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. But this is not reflected in the media. There's also not a ton of available research out here about this specific statistic, but what I could find was a study about children. Hmm. So like, for example, white children made up 88% of media coverage about missing children, but only 54% of cases, according to Hmm. an article by Simon and Woods, which we'll link to. African-American children, on the other hand, made up 35% of cases, but only 8% of media coverage. So this is just like a little taste about what's happening in like this media pool. And Rivers has the same rhetorical framing on her website where she says, quote, why is it that according to the National Crime Information Center of the FBI, approximately 33% of people reported missing are black, but that isn't reflective on the evening news. So that's really like how this project is organized and framed. I think that that makes her project sort of all the more beautiful. 
So what I want to do is I just have a couple cases pulled up here and I just kind of want to point some things out that I see happening. The first article that I see, which we'll link to, of course, is about a woman named Kalisha Madden, who is 26. And the article starts, Kalisha Madden, 26, last seen getting into a vehicle with three men in 2011. To me, that's interesting because in a lot of ways that reads like a news headline. Yeah. Which I think does potentially help with the news repair portion. And less so with like the storytelling part. Like it's all facts up front. Yeah. Not Kalisha Madden, beautiful young mother, which the article does talk about. I also want to point out how this article starts. Rivers writes, as billions of people celebrate ringing in the new year, it is difficult to not be confronted with the disappointment and sadness that millions of families endure this time of year. The holidays are filled with heartwarming moments between families, but several will not know that sense of peace because they continue to search for answers regarding their missing and murdered relatives, much like the loved ones of Kalisha Madden. I just really appreciate, I think, this very victim-centered storytelling approach that's happening here. What Rivers has done and what I sort of like did backwards was find the primary news articles about them, focusing specifically on interviews with family members and sort of recreated her story from there, really focusing on Pamela, who's Kalisha Madden's mom, and sort of what she oh. had to say about her character. Well, and I think that the experience of grief and loss often, as you're pointing out, gets kind of buried in the framing of spectacle of violence. Yes. Around catchy jingles and laughs and commercials, it's just, let me tell you about this interesting thing that happened, not let's honor somebody who was brutally murdered. And a family that's, or loved ones. I mean, it's not just family, you know. Yeah. Of course, it's it's loved ones and friends and yeah. communities sometimes, whole communities yeah. impacted by these things so again she says please share the story about Kalisha Madden to help reignite the investigation into her case she is our sister and her life matters so there's just one other story that I want to highlight just for the sake of time this woman's name is Raja McQueen and the headline is Raja McQueen 27 last seen in her vehicle at a gas station in 2021 I also really like because Erica has set up this structure of storytelling and this database, this network, that treating these headlines equally and fairly and the same actually is a move towards equality in my mind. And leading with her name, like, I don't need to say beautiful young woman missing mm -hmm. because, in fact, she has enough value just being a person with a name. As we all do. Yeah. She does start with a beloved mother of two sons has been missing since last summer. And as the case progresses, there seems to be more questions than answers. This is another one of those stories that really relies on information that's already out there as an effort to boost awareness. And I think do a lot of the media work, which is like media attention puts pressure on police and helps people keep their eyes out. So another thing that Rivers does is she always has the numbers to all different kinds of people that want to be contacted with information, whether that's a police department or a family member. Please share the story about Raja McQueen to help raise awareness about her missing persons case. She is our sister and her life matters. That's so phenomenal. I like how Rivers has set up a new narrative structure in this mm -hmm. website. 
The new formula. The new formula, perhaps. That is victim-centered, grief-centered, life-centered. So this amazing woman, Erica Marie Rivers, and everything that she does, still found time to email me back. (laughs) I told her that I'm looking at these issues for my thesis topic, and I just wanted to ask her a quick question. She says, hi, Solana. Thank you so much for reaching out. And I wanted to cry. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) And so I really asked her about true crime, what it does, what it does to her because it is so grounded in whiteness, how Mm -hmm. it deals with black bodies, things like that. And this is her response. She says, this is a tricky answer for me. I am a fan of infotainment. That is what true crime is in our current media driven society. But I do not always agree with its methods. Criminal cases are sensationalized. And she adds a side note here that a majority of cases, including black people that grab the media's attention, typically involve serial killers or police murder. She says serial killers are idolized and even become sex symbols. And we binge watch victims and survivors pain for kicks in one docuseries after another. Ted Bundy, Zac Efron combo, anybody? Yeah. So River says, not only does all of this make us spectators... But the opportunity for moments like this Gabby Petito case makes people feel as if they're part of the solution. We are a part of the, quote, show. However, it's still entertainment, people sharing theories and rumors and false information. She says, while I do believe that black, brown, and indigenous women and girls deserve the level of attention that a white woman receives, I don't know if I'm necessarily interested in them becoming the face of the latest sensationalized viral moment. And I believe that about anyone, no matter what the background is. Gosh, she sounds amazing. She is amazing. And incredible. She follows up with, I have a heart for these women and their loved ones. My intention, even though I recognize that Our Black Girls is a part of the infotainment machine, is to humanize these women and girls. I want to share their stories in a way that doesn't make their mothers, sisters, daughters, sons, etc. uncomfortable to read. If we told these stories correctly, maybe not correctly, if we told these stories more Mm. in this way, we would realize how horrible and sad violence is. It's not funny. It's not entertaining. It's just sad. That's so incredible. Thank you for sharing that with me and and all of us. And this is beautiful, beautiful, important, amazing work. And thank you to Erica for being willing to undertake it and putting Mm -hmm. in that time and energy and emotion and erica thank you for getting back to us i know i know this is what it's about the good people that are doing the good work Mm -hmm. yeah so i guess i should also say she gave me full permission to talk about her website and use the email and talk about these stories and i'll just say that it's not my job to tell these stories on behalf of these families but just to boost a better way to approach talking about these things Thank you. Well, that's all we have for this week. And just like Erica, be a blessing and not a curse. Thank Take you. care. This is the latest from the Deadbeat. That is Mary Kay Gorman. And that is Solana Quistorf. And we want to thank you for listening. If you like what you heard here, tell a friend. And then definitely check out our website thedeadbeatpodcast.com, where we will have links to research, cool extra content, and all the material referenced in the episode. 
and we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, feedback, and ideas for future episodes to comments at deadbeatpodcast.com. As always, a huge thank you to our producer, Greg Ronco, without whom this project would not be possible. Thank you to the English department at the University of Wyoming, specifically our thesis and reading exam committees for supporting us in our scholarly endeavors, no matter how odd they may be.